You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. Back in 2007, the Barna Research Group did this project where they asked unbelievers what were the top reasons that they did not believe in God or that they had rejected Christianity. And they were amazed to find that the responses they got from these people who did not believe in God, that the top six reasons were not evidential reasons. They weren't reasons like science or archaeology, that things that disprove God, but rather they were moralistic reasons, reasons like Christians are hypocrites, Christians are judgmental, Christians hate homosexuals. And while we talked in our series on the problem of God about some of those evidential reasons, we're going to shift our focus now to some of those moralistic reasons. And I'm going to talk to you this morning about the problem of sex and why sexuality is often an issue for people who want to come to faith in God, uh, the Bible's stance on sexuality specifically. And then the other one that I want to deal with tonight is the problem of hypocrisy. And that normally uh, have a part of our series on a Sunday night. We're going to kind of do it tonight as a bonus message because we wanted to get that in, problem of hypocrisy. And so I hope that you'll plan to check that out. Um, as we talk about sexuality, there are many people who feel like the Bible's ideas about sexuality are repressive or uh, um, regressive, they're, they're oppressing, oppressing to people's desires, and that it, the Bible does not allow people to enjoy sex. For many people, the idea of believing in God and becoming a Christian means the end of their sex life. And I want to tackle that, uh, that conception uh, today. But before I get into my message, I need to tell you about this book that came out it's just amazing what this book said. The book said that our sex-crazed culture has a problem, and the problem is not that we're having too much sex, that there's too much sexuality out there. He says that the problem is that we're not having enough sex. Can you believe that? Would you believe that that is actually a book that's in the Bible, that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, the sex-crazed culture, and told them that their issue was not that they needed to stay away from all sex, but rather they needed to pursue sex within the context that God had designed it. He wasn't telling them that they should stay away from sex, but rather that they should pursue sex regularly with their husband or their wife. Let me read you some of what he says in his letters to the Corinthians. This is in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and then into chapter 7. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, is it good for a man not to touch a woman? Apparently somebody in Corinth has said, listen, this is this better if men and women don't, don't mingle, don't touch. Just stay away from women. Sex is evil. Stay away from them. And so Paul says, let, let me give you some explanation here. Nevertheless, avoid fornication, but let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. And let the husband render unto his wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power over her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power over his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one of another, except it be with consent for a time, that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And then come together again, that Satan tempt you not, for your incontinency. What Paul is saying there in Corinthians is that stay away from sexual sin, but pursue sex with your spouse. 
And the reason that Paul is writing this is because Corinth was this sexually crazed city. It was known being this port town as a place of, of great prostitution. It was known as this, as this place where the, the pagan temples employed priests and priestesses who would perform sexual favors, and sex was a part of the religious experience at these temples. But when Paul writes to them, he says and say, listen, there's just too much sex going on in Corinth. Stay away from it. Rather, he says, you need to pursue sex within marriage. And every husband and every wife needs to be faithful to have sex regularly with their spouse. And the only reason that you should abstain from it with your husband or your wife is if you have decided together that you will set it aside for a time of fasting and prayer. And even in those cases, it shouldn't be too long because Satan will use that to tempt you. Scripture has a very different take on sex than most people realize. And I want to give you a kind of an understanding of how the Bible has become viewed as repressive on the issue of sex. We stand right now in a dually revolutionized culture. We have just come off the heels of two sexual revolutions. The first one happening in the 60s and 70s, the summer of love, where the pill became ubiquitous, sex became more freed, and people had a greater freedom to express their sexuality and to have sex. I read one London journalist recounting of this area. She said, we've been brought up to say no to sex, but only for the reason that, it was, that we might get pregnant. But now, armed with the pill, we were free. But every man, knowing that you were armed with the pill, and pregnancy no longer reason to say no, men exploited this mercilessly. To be honest, I mainly remember the 60s as an endless round of miserable promiscuity, a time when often it seemed easier, and believe it or not, more polite to sleep with a man than to chuck him out of your flat. Sex became to something that everyone felt more free about, and some exploited that freedom to demand it from one another. The second sexual revolution, the one that came up in my generation, was brought about by the internet, and this started with the ever-present availability of pornography, which led to the digital hookup culture wherein right now there are apps available on your smartphone that will help you find someone that you can have a casual sexual encounter with, with no strings attached. The economist Stephen Dubner and Stephen Levitt actually wrote about this in their book, Freakonomics. They said that the, the ubiquity of pornography and sex in our current culture has changed the economics of prostitution greatly because now sex is more readily available free than ever before. Fewer men are willing to pay a high premium for sex. It's more difficult than ever to earn a good living as a prostitute. And it's in this duly revolutionized culture that we sit today where sex is more readily available than ever before. It is cheaper or freer than ever before. And in this culture, the Bible's take on sex is a very distinct perspective. And it's also viewed as a pronounced problem. This has caused many people to come to the conclusion that to be a Christian is to have no sex life, or to believe in God is to say goodbye to your sex life. It's in that context that we have quotes like this one from Bertrand Russell, the worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude toward sex. Or we had the teachings of Margaret Sanger a generation ago who said, Christians are moralists who promote self-denial and suppression because of our teaching on sex. Christopher Hitchens, who wrote God is Not Great, said that religious people, and in all religious people, should be banned from modern discourse about sexuality in general. This is also the culture. This is also the cultural moment that's brought about the last six months of an onslaught 
of allegations of sexual misconduct against those in powerful positions in politics, in Hollywood, the private sector, and even the church. The dam broke, and all of this came flooding in, uh, in back starting in October of 2017, when the New York Times broke a story of sexual misconduct on Hollywood power player Harvey Weinstein. The allegations and stories that have come tumbling out since that point to the problem that I want to help define this morning, that in a culture where sex is cheaper and freer than ever before, we are hurling ourselves and heading down the road toward conclusions that are not only false, but ultimately direct us towards great harm to ourselves and others. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that if you don't hold Scripture's perspective on sex that you're a predator like Harvey Weinstein or Kevin Spacey. Not everyone who would disagree with me this, this morning on my perspectives and the biblical views of sex is a predator. But I am saying that our culture's high priority on the autonomous self and our failure to recognize the limitations as healthy and embrace the restrictions as beneficial has led us towards a dissatisfied sexual culture in an age of miserable promiscuity. You see, when we fail to recognize limitations as healthy, when we fail to see restrictions as beneficial, we put ourselves in position to be sexually dissatisfied and miserably promiscuous. Let me, let me try to explain what I'm saying here. Uh, down at the end of Fifth Street, the road that uh, our church is located on, and before you get to the highway, there is a stop sign. And that stop sign requires you to stop before you make your turn onto the highway to head towards Evansville or, or Boonville. Many people view stop signs as an inconvenience. It's a hindrance. It requires you to stop when you would really like to go. And probably for all of us, there's a stop sign that we come to regularly on our commute where there's no one else around. And so we've gotten into the habit of maybe just kind of barely paying attention to that stop sign, slowing down a little bit, but we just roll on through it. Maybe there's occasionally a cop nearby, and so then you stomp because you realize that you could get a ticket for doing a rolling stop, and you slosh your coffee. There's probably, for all of us, some stop signs that we think, oh, I wish that one wasn't there. But we probably all recognize the importance of stop signs, how important they are for everyone's safety. And while there's some stop signs near my home that are often an inconvenience, I'm glad that they're there because they, they lead towards my family's safety. And if we developed a culture where people said, listen, my car is built to go fast and I don't want anything to slow it down, and we just started removing stop signs, we would be making our streets much less safe. When we go around tearing down stop signs because we like to go fast, because we have cars that were built to go fast and they should be free to run, we make our community dangerous. And what we have right now is a culture, a sexual landscape, where all of the stop signs are being torn down. And no one can tell me where to stop or how fast I should go or how slow I should go. And I want you to recognize that what Scripture teaches us is that it is healthy to have some restrictions because sex can be a dangerous proposition. Not only dangerous to others, but dangerous to our own souls. The Bible is, is seen as repressive, and because of these guidelines that we find in Scripture, the, the community at large and culture does not want Scripture's teachings on sexuality be, to be brought into the public square. And, and, and before I move forward, I'd just like to point out a little bit of a hypocrisy here. No one's ever told me that I need to 
keep my mouth shut or to keep my religion inside the church when it comes to the issue of homelessness. No one's ever told me that our church needs to stop doing so much in regards to addiction in our community. And when it comes to issues of social justice, the church is welcome to the table to make a contribution, to be of help. But when it comes to the sexual culture of our time, the, the religion is, is pushed out. We're told that we, we don't belong. Suddenly the church is not allowed to weigh in. And that's because people have this misconception that our perspective on sex is backwards. I want to show you that God's word and his teaching on sexuality is not backwards. And I think I can best do that by contrasting it with three unbiblical perspectives on sex. And when I talk about sex, I need you to recognize that I'm speaking of all sexual sin. When Paul says here to the Corinthians, flee fornication, he uses the word pornea, which refers to all sexual sin. And so he's referring to sexual sin that is adultery, uh, fornication, sleeping with someone who isn't your, your, your spouse, uh, homosexuality. It's all sexual sin. And so there isn't this, this carte blanche for heterosexual sexual sin. It, it, sometimes the church has this... this um, the idea in culture is that the church is only against homosexual sin. We, we stand against all sexual sin. And so if you're a heterosexual involved in adultery, you're stepping outside of the commitment you made uh, to your wife. You're uh, a heterosexual who is engaging in casual sexual encounters or engaging in pornography. These perspectives on sex are, are, are a conviction to you as well. So this is for all sexual sin. So the first unbiblical perspective on sex is that Sex is bad. And the church hasn't helped its cause when it comes to this topic of sex because often the approach has been sex is dirty, vile, gross, and evil, so save it for the one that you truly love. The Catholic Church has probably heard the PR of the church as a whole on this front because the Catholic Church prays to the Virgin Mary and requires its church leaders, priests and nuns, to never marry. They've also said that the only purpose of sex is for procreation, the purpose of having children. Sex is not bad. And sex is not something that should be avoided by church leaders. Sex is good. God created sex. If you just take a cursory reading of the Old Testament, you'll see that in Genesis, the Bible tells us each part of creation that God went through, and he saw that it was good, and then he created man and woman, and Scripture is clear to tell us that he created them naked in the garden, and that he saw that it was very good. God creates man, and then he creates woman, and presents woman to man, and Scripture is very clear that they are naked, and man says, whoa, man. This is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Man shall leave his father and mother's and shall be one flesh with his wife. I mean, God created man and woman naked in the garden without any shame. He put them in paradise with no clothes on. He set the mood. He didn't put them there to play hopscotch. Then he tells them, be fruitful and multiply. Scripture makes it clear that God intended sex to be something that was enjoyed and pleasurable, that God promoted the idea. Proverbs 5.18 even says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth. May her breast fill you at all times with delight. Deuteronomy 
one of the Old Testament books of Moses, Moses' law, Deuteronomy 24.5, commanded Israel not to require any young man to go off to war as a soldier if he was in the first year of his marriage so that he could stay home and enjoy and pleasure his new bride. If you read the book in the Bible, the Song of Solomon, you'll see that it is a book of erotic poetry. So much so, so explicit, that young Jewish boys were not allowed to read it until they had come of age. It's a back and forth between a male and female lover. It's back and forth between these two young lovers. They're talking about one another's physical anatomy and what they would like to do to one another. And then in chapter 5, after four full chapters of them going back and forth, in chapter 5, God shows up and you say, oh boy, they're in trouble now. They've been talking dirty and God is going to get onto them. But God doesn't show up and say, knock it off, you dirty kids. Rather, he shows up and he says, eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. In other words, God wasn't a killjoy. Rather, God wanted them to enjoy themselves. So when Paul writes to the believers in the sex-created city of Corinth, he doesn't say, hey, don't, don't do that, or don't even talk about it. He says, stay away from sexual sin by enjoying sex in the appropriate context of marriage. He's saying this. He's not harshing their vibe. He's not ruining their from. Rather, he's telling them that the most appropriate and best means of enjoying God's gift of sex is in a long-term committed relationship. Now, our culture has this recurring joke that marriage and sex don't coexist, that if you want to ruin your sex life, get married. Comedians have said things like, uh, if you see a happy man, you know that he's single. Uh, Larry David, who's one of the head writers on Seinfeld, said, let me ask you a question. Who do you think has more freedom, a single man in communist China or an American, man, American married man in, uh, in America? W- which grants more freedom, uh, communism and being single or being free politically and being married? The truth is that while that's a, a common cultural joke. It doesn't bear out. In a groundbreaking study, Linda Waite and Maggie Gallagher published The Case for Marriage, and they found that the number of married people having sex twice a week is double the number of cohabitating couples having sex at the same frequency. The percentage of both men and women who are both physically and emotionally content with their sex life is higher for married persons. The State University of New York at Stony Brook uh, did a survey, and it was called the most uh, authoritative study on sex by U.S. News and World Report, and they found that of all sexually active people, those who were most satisfied were married people. Now, marriage is the whipping boy of many comedians, but it's truly the context where they're the greatest contentment and enjoyment in sex can be found in the context of marriage, and I'll, I'll talk to you about why that is in a minute. So, the first unbiblical perspective on sex is that sex is bad. That's, that's not God's perspective on sex at all. The second is that sex is God. Perhaps you're familiar with the fable of the boy who cried wolf. He, he's watching the sheep, and uh, the, the village people tell him, listen, if a wolf comes, cry out, and we will come running and save the sheep. And so he's out in the field, and he's bored, and he's alone, and so he cries wolf, and all the people come running out, but there's no wolf, and they're frustrated with him. And day goes by, and the next day he... He's bored again, so he cries wolf, and all the people come running out, and there's no wolf, so they're frustrated again. On the third day, a wolf really does show up, and the boy cries wolf, but the people don't listen to him because they think that he's once again lying. And depending upon which version your parents told you, uh, the wolf kills all the sheep or maybe even kills the boy. 
What we have in our culture right now is sex, which is to be this powerful communication between two people, to be the most powerful communication, nonverbal communication of love and commitment and even covenant is being treated so flippantly and casually in our culture that the meaning of the signal has been lost. And because sexual encounters happen with people who you don't even care about, because sexual encounters happen with people you don't even know, you're just looking at on a screen, when someone does get married and they have sex with someone that they love and they're committed to, it doesn't carry that same significance because we have associated sex with casual encounters with people that we barely know or don't even care about. What happens is for people who have been involved in pornography or in casual sex, even later in life when they're married, the satisfaction and contentment that can be found in sex with their spouse, with someone that they are committed to, it is not the same. It has lost something because the signal doesn't carry as much meaning. Moms and dads, let me challenge you to protect your children from pornography. It is the greatest gift that you can give to their marriage, the greatest gift that you can give to their future spouse. And some of you think that you don't need to worry about this yet because your children are teenagers. It starts younger and younger. We have a culture right now where children have never had to ask their parents a question. We have a culture right now where children are able to turn to their phone. They're able to turn to Google about any question that they have, about any difficulty that they have with homework, whatever. And they have been conditioned to go to the internet looking for answers. And so when they begin to have questions about sexuality, when they begin to have questions about sex and the meaning of it and how it works, that's where they're going to turn. And the answers that they're going to find online will lead them to dissatisfaction, will lead them to insecurity. And I'm going to be doing a parenting study uh, next month, uh, a series of messages on parenting. I'm going to talk to you some about this, but it is, is tragic, the things that we're seeing children, the way that their, their, their minds are being shaped, their insecurity is being formed by internet pornography at younger and younger ages. Because we have made sex so available, our current culture has come to see sex as an ultimate expression of who we are and what we do. Sex is being thought of as the ultimate identifier for who we are. Uh, Many parents think it's healthy to allow their children to become introduced to sex at the appropriate age, but we're gearing up our children to filter their whole worldview through sex. And today, many people most identify themselves with their sexuality, with who they're attracted to. And for this reason, we have all these current debates about gender and sexuality and homosexuality and transgenderism. And we've missed the boat of of what all of this rests upon. Our sexuality is not what our identity rests upon. Our identity rests upon God. That's where our identity is first found. That's who we are. We are children of God who are loved by a good God. We sang Good, Good Father and I've had people tell me that, that that song is very simplistic because you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. And that message, those words may be simplistic and repetitive, but I think it's a message that we desperately need to get a hold of today, that we have absolutely lost sight of today, that my identity does not rest upon my sexuality. My identity does not rest upon my bank account. My identity does not rest upon my possession. My identity rests upon who God is and how much I matter to him. He is a good father and I'm loved by him. That's where my identity starts and where it rests. You see, Pastor, I think maybe you're, you're kind of exaggerating 
this. Let me show you where this mindset of sexuality is ultimate. Margaret Sanger, who was the, the forerunner of Planned Parenthood, uh, she said this a generation ago, okay? Sexual liberation is the only method to finding inner peace and security and beauty. Remove the constraints and prohibitions which now hinder the release of inner energies, and most of the larger evils of society will perish. Through sex, mankind will attain the great spiritual illumination, which will transform the world and light up the only path to an earthly paradise. The only path to an earthly paradise is through sexual liberation, is what she said. There's a perspective out there that sex is bad, then there's this perspective that sex is God, and that we find everything in it, that we find who we are, our identity. Talk about exclusive claims. Sex is God thinking was nothing new in the 60s when Margaret Sanger said these things. It's nothing new today. It was nothing new 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote to Corinth because there the people would go to the temple to experience God through sex. Paul is telling them sex is something to be enjoyed within the context of marriage. He says that in chapter 7. But then he goes on to tell them that for some people, it may be that sex is a distraction from the ultimate good, which is God. And Paul says to them, it may be that some of you should stay single, as I am, because you'll be able to better serve the Lord. And he was going to be going into places where he would be arrested and, and beaten if, because he preached the gospel. And it's much easier to do that if you're not bringing your wife and children and have to worry about their safety. And so Paul would have been able to go places for the gospel that he couldn't have otherwise with a wife and family. And Paul says, sex is great and all, but have you tried serving God? He was saying that, that if you're not married, you're not able to have sex, that the sex is God culture wonders what you live for, but I can tell you that there is something yet to live for. And if we think of sex as God, we're going to be very disappointed. We're going to set people up for a great disappointment. Because of this perspective that sex is God, that it's the ultimate thing. People aren't, aren't striving like they used to because now sex is so readily available. And they think that the ultimate in life is just easily given to them. Philip Zimbardo and Nikita Duncan address in their book, The Demise of Guys, that a sexual liberal ethic has had a major impact upon Western culture. Easy access to, to sex has affected men's motivation to achieve life goals. Given young men who have been able to achieve sexual pleasure through pornography, when given the opportunity to go out with a woman on a date, they're not really that tempted because this woman that they would go on a date with will probably not look like a porn star that they can easily find on the Internet. She probably won't show up in lingerie. They'll have to go and have conversation, and there will be dinner to buy, and then the end of the night may not end in a sexual encounter. He'd much rather just stick with the sure thing, which is on his laptop or phone. I said that this has now led to a prevalence of Peter Pan syndrome, a growing crop of young men who have never been called to anything great. They've always been involved in passive activities like video games and internet pornography. They've never been called to a major commitment. The only major campaigns they know have been in Call of Duty. So they're not called to anything great. Paul says sex is a beautiful gift that God has given to us to enjoy in marriage, but it's not the ultimate thing in life. The ultimate thing in life is serving God and building His kingdom and making a difference in the world. So sex is bad, sex is God. And the third unbiblical perspective is that sex is appetite. 
there's a popular perspective today that sex is just an appetite that we need to satisfy, like we need sleep and we need to eat and we need to go to the bathroom, that it's just a part of our evolutionary process. Now, this was even present back in Paul's day in, in Corinth because he says to them, there is this perspective that meat for the bellies and, and belly for meats. And in other words, it's just an appetite and if I get what I want, then I'm satisfied. And this is, this is problematic because if sex is just an outgrowth of our evolutionary nature, our naturalistic uh, process of coming to be as humans, then sex is just a biological function. And there's no sex that is abnormal. Alfred Kinsey, uh, whose book, The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, lectured scientists on this fact that we should not refer to sexual practices as normal and abnormal, but that sex is just sex. It's a biological function. And we should have no ethical comment. I don't think there's anybody watching this who would say that all sex is just normal. And we don't believe that sex with a child is normal. We don't believe that sex with a victim is normal. Similarly, there was an article in the New York Academy of Science entitled, Why Men Rape? And it argued that rape itself is not a pathology, but rather simply a result of our evolutionary adaptation for maximizing our reproductive success, similar to the leopard spots and the giraffe's elongated neck. In other words, rape is natural. Rape is not wrong or a pathology. Rape is just our evolutionary instinct to procreate and reproduce our genes, and through rape, we're able to increase our chances at reproducing our genes by having sexual encounters with multiple people, whether or not they want to have a sexual encounter with us or not. Sex is most definitely more than an appetite. It's most definitely more than a biological function. Paul says here that sex is two people becoming one flesh, and that he who commits other sins commits sins outside the body, but he who commits sexual sin commit sin against his own body. It's something that, that wounds us deeply, is what he's saying. It's something that affects not just our physical nature, but our spiritual nature. It affects our hearts. Mark Clark, in his book, points out a, a good way to, to understand this. He says, ask a, a victim of sexual abuse if the pain stopped when the sexual abuse stopped. And we know that the pain of sexual abuse does not stop when the act is stopped, but it sticks with the victim for years and years, and it brings about deep wounds. It lingers because we are more than physical specimens. We're more than just a mashup of, of cells and biology. We are spirit. We are emotions. We're, we have a soul that can be hurt. And so even when the bruises and the scrapes have healed, there is this deep wound that remains. And the same is true of, of all sexual encounters. There is something deeper at, at, at work than just the physical act of sex. The perspective of Scripture is that we should never get naked and vulnerable with someone physically until we've gotten intimate with them in every other way. That the physical act of sex is an extension of the intimacy that we have with someone that we have committed our lives, our love, our whole self to. And once we've gotten transparent and naked with them in every other way, we are then ready to be completely intimate with them in sex. What we're finding in our current culture is the more that we get transparent with others physically, with people that we've not got transparent emotionally with, the harder it is for us to get transparent emotionally, the harder it is for us to give our hearts away. And the more that we become physically intimate with other people, 
the less truly intimate we can become with someone that we love. Why does Scripture get so hung up on sex? Why does God have this perspective on sex? Because he knows what will bring us harm. He knows what is good for us. He is a good, good God who has given us sex as a gift and knows how powerful it is and therefore how dangerous it can be, what damage it can do to our hearts and souls, what damage it can bring to our emotional well-being. And so God is not trying to ruin anyone's good time. From the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve to Song of Solomon with the two young lovers to the people in Corinth to today, God is not trying to ruin anyone's good time. God is trying to give us the life where we will find the greatest safety and satisfaction. Paul says here, you are bought with a price. Many people today feel that their worth is wrapped up in their sexuality or their sexual attractiveness. Paul says that we are worth so much to God that we were bought at a great, great price. We matter to God. He values us highly. And for that reason, he wants to see no harm come to us. He wants to see no heartache brought to us. He wants us to experience the greatest amount of satisfaction and safety emotionally, physically, spiritually, sexually. And it may be that because of your sexual past, whether it was sexual abuse or sexual misconduct or sexual sin, that you feel a great amount of shame, that you're embarrassed and ashamed of the things that you've done or the things that have been done to you. I want you to know that Paul mentions here, we were bought with a price, and that price was Christ's death on the cross. And the Romans used the cross because it was this cheap, reproducible means of execution, and also because it was incredibly humiliating. They would go into places and crucify the leaders of the opposing army because it was a cheap, easy way to execute them, but it was also a very public display. In many places, when the Romans crucified people, they would strip them naked. So they hung there, dying, breathing their last breath, naked in front of their whole town. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was not only experiencing great physical pain, he was also experiencing great shame that was being heaped upon him. The Bible says that as Christ was dying on the cross, that God turned away, the sky became dark, Christ cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he felt absolutely alone in the wilderness. And Christ died on the cross, not only taking our sin, but taking our shame. And if you have suffered sexual abuse, you have been involved in sexual sin, Christ died to take your shame so that you no longer need to be embarrassed. You no longer need to feel shame. You can experience his forgiveness, his embrace, and his restoration. Jesus died a a death of pain and shame so that we no longer need suffer either pain nor shame. You can experience his forgiveness by putting your faith and trust in Christ. You can be forgiven of your sexual sin. And you can experience restoration. 